This week on Wealth Track, legendary economist and financial thought leader Burton Malkiel on investing four decades after writing his classic A Random Walk Down Wall Street. Next on Consuelo Mack, Wealth Track. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going. Additional funding provided by Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective. Ku and Patricia Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences, and the Fairhome Foundation. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. It's been more than 40 years since Burton Malkiel wrote his investment classic, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. The book sent shockwaves through the investment community with its research showing that, quote, a blindfolded monkey throwing darts at a newspaper's financial pages could select a portfolio that would do just as well as one carefully selected by experts. Through numerous editions since it was first published in 1973, a random walk has challenged just about every investment theory on Wall Street that promised consistent market-beating performance. And it said it was nigh impossible once you figured in transaction costs and taxes. Malkia's conclusion, outperformance can and does occur randomly, but you can't depend upon it. The street has undergone tremendous changes since 1973. To name just a few, deregulation starting with stock commissions in 1975, Jack Bogle's launch of the first index fund in 1976, online trading for individuals was created in the early 1990s, globalization of capital markets and trading, the digital revolution with its quantitative models, algorithms, and high-frequency trading, tax-deferred investment accounts, including the IRA in 1974 and 401k in 1978. The first ETF, the Spider, was created in 1993. And while interest in investing has spread, the number of publicly traded stocks in the U.S. has decreased by over 46% from more than 8,000 in 1996 to about 4,000 in 2016. Meanwhile, flows out of actively managed portfolios into index funds have surged. Professor Malkiel has more than kept up with all of these changes. He continues to write books, 11 published so far, editorials, do research, almost 200 papers published, serve on boards. He spent 25 years on vanguards, is now on robo-advisor Wealthfront's board, where he is also chief investment officer. And he is one of three CIOs with another financial thought leader and WealthTrack regular, Charlie Ellis, on the Rebalance IRA board, which combines automatic rebalancing with a personal touch. I asked Malkiel, given all of the changes we have seen, if his views of the markets have changed at all. Well, obviously, there's been a great deal of change. Uh, when I first wrote uh, A Random Walk Down Wall Street in 1973, I recommended, I thought that people should be invested in broad-based index funds. There were no index funds. Uh, right. And I said there ought to be. In fact, uh, uh, what I suggested is some institution, maybe the New York Stock Exchange, ought to uh, put one together. It was three years later when Vanguard uh, introduced what was called the first index fund. Right, 1976. And it was not a commercial success at all. Uh, that was underwritten. 
they sold uh, a small fraction of what they had hoped to do. Right. Uh, it was very slow to take off. Uh, I uh, joined the Vanguard board in 1977, and I used to joke with Jack Vogel that he and I were the only shareholders in the uh, first uh, index fund. But over time, uh, indexing uh, has taken hold, and one of the other huge changes is, uh, of course, the proliferation of ETFs, exchange-traded funds, and most of them are basically uh, index funds. The large ones are basically uh, index funds. So the thesis that I had suggested in 1973, I believe in even more firmly than when I first wrote it. And why is that? Well, because the evidence has accumulated uh, and it just gets stronger and stronger. Standard & Poor's uh, is uh, the kind of de facto uh, uh, scorecard keeper uh, for active management. And every year at the beginning of the year, you can count the number of articles that said, well, indexing worked okay last year, but this is going to be the year of the stock picker. And every year, it turns out that probably two-thirds of the active managers are outperformed by the index, and the third that outperform in one year are not the same as the ones who do it the next year. And what Standard & Poor's did this year in their report, it's called the SPIVA SPIVA. report, Standard & Poor's versus Active, uh, what they found, they were able to do 15-year histories, and then it's not two-thirds, it's 90%. Right. So it's not that it's impossible to uh, outperform, but what I've often said, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack and at least the core of your portfolio ought to be invested in broad-based indices. You want to go out and take a flyer on a manager you think is good, you want to buy an individual stock, fine, but you can do it with much less risk if the broad core of your uh, investments is invested in index funds. And in terms of the changes that you talked about, The one thing that is wonderful now for the individual investor is with the deregulation of uh, commissions, Mm -hmm. commissions are uh, essentially uh, zero uh, today. There are many uh, online brokers who will actually do trades for uh, a zero uh, commission. And the competition, the ETF competition, has meant that you can now buy broad-based index funds with an expense ratio of three basis points, right. three one-hundredths of one percent. So that's been just wonderful for individual investors. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, it makes the advice to buy index funds even stronger than it was before. Needless to say, I talk to a lot of active managers, and there are some you know, pretty good arguments out there as well that would you know, suggest that maybe going with the herd, and, and it is now a herd, the momentum going into index funds to passive funds is just s- enormous. So he, let me raise some of the objections that, that I've heard. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, one of them is that the, it, the market capitalization-weighted structure of most passive funds means that you are, at any given period of time, 
going to have, let's say, a concentration in the most expensive stocks, and an example being the FANG stocks and the fact that at some point during the last year, 50% of the performance of the S&P 500 was in five tech stocks, and that, that you have this real concentration in tech stocks, just like a lot of people did in, you know, in the late 1990s, just like in the 60s they did with the Nifty 50. I mean, isn't that a problem in this kind of broad-based recommendation that everyone should own indexes? First of all, I don't think that uh, indexing to me means you want to buy the S&P 500. All right, so that's important because so that's the it's most very popular important. Vehicle. I want you to buy a total stock market fund. I right. want you to buy everything. And if you buy everything, everything, the whole market is capitalization weighted. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the logic of this, if you're buying the whole market, everybody is going to get on average what the market gives you. Right. And the whole market being, are you talking about the whole U.S. market? Are you well, actually, talking I'm about talking the about the whole market? world market. Right. But let's think of the U.S. market, right, for which, example, uh, uh, just as an example. Investing has to be what is called a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. That is to say, if someone is holding the stocks that go up more than the average of the whole market, it has to follow that somebody else is holding the stocks that go down. Right. So it's, in that sense, it's got to be a zero-sum game. But in the, in the case of costs, where you can buy the market at zero cost and the average active manager charges about 1%, mm -hmm. it has to be a negative sum game. That is to say, the people who are active will get the market return minus those costs, and therefore the index investor won't be average the index investor will be better than average. So a, a couple of things. Number one, if you were to look at the Russell 2000, for instance, 33% of the Russell 2000 companies in that index don't make any money. And so why would I want to buy 33% you know, of 2000 stocks um, that, that aren't making any money? And an, another example uh, is that right now the U.S. market has shrunk tremendously over the last 20 years we have you know, 50% fewer publicly traded companies. So in fact, we're becoming less diversified. So how do you answer those uh, first questions? First of all, uh, in terms of owning stocks that don't make any money, right. for many, many years, uh, Amazon, one of today's great favorites, was making no money right. uh, and yet growing very rapidly. It's always going to be the case that some of the smaller growth companies uh, are not making uh, any money. Uh, and uh, eventually, uh, like Amazon, some of them fail, right. but eventually uh, some of them make a lot of money. So when you own the whole market, uh, you uh, not only uh, own the very profitable companies, but you also own some of the smaller growing companies. Now, on your second question about the U.S. market right. shrinking, I've long believed that we have what we economists generally call a home country bias. 
that we sort of think we live in the United States, we'll just buy U.S. stocks. Or, uh, you know, the U.S. companies sell all over the world, so we don't need anything else. I don't think that's true. We are only about a third of the capitalization of the whole world. Uh, The rest of the world may be, in some sense, uh, more reasonably valued than the U.S., Emerging markets are growing much more rapidly uh, than the developed markets. The demography favors the emerging markets. So you really want to be completely diversified. Mm -hmm. And so when I say buy a broad-based index fund, I want you to buy one that holds all of the stocks throughout the developed world and the emerging markets. What about not using market capitalization-weighted indexes? What about Rob Arnott's been a guest on, on WealthTrack, for instance, and you know, he's looking at, looking at fundamental you know, indexes, which he basically pioneered, and instead looking at the economic footprint that, that companies can have and, and t- taking the same indexes, but basically ranking them not by you know, what the market is judging that they're doing, not by their price, but by their fundamentals, by their revenues, by their earnings, by their dividends. What about cash flow? What about that kind of a Uh, reconfiguration of indexing? Still uh, indexing, but... Rob, uh, who has developed so-called fundamental indexing, is probably one of the most brilliant marketers uh, that I know. This uh, was really the beginning of... uh, what might have been called uh, a smart beta. Right. Uh, it is possible that there are uh, some of these funds that are weighted a little differently that might outperform. Uh, Rob has done a tiny bit better than the market mm-hmm. over his uh, history. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I believe it is because with his different weighting, he has taken on a lot more risk. And mm-hmm. let me give you an, exa- right. uh, an example. To the extent that he has outperformed, this was done in the 2008-2009 period. In that period, he had Bank of America and Citicorp 15% of his portfolio. Mm-hmm. He had bank stocks double-weighted because they looked cheap. Right. At that point, you may remember that it wasn't clear whether the government was going to bail them out, whether they might simply uh, take the stockholders and tell them uh, goodbye. There's no uh, value there. That was a brilliant bet because the government bailed out the financial system. Right. The banks then uh, increased in value. But don't tell me Mm -hmm. that by that different weighting, you were not taking on more risk. And Rob's expense ratio, it's come down a little, but it was over 50 basis points. And I've said that sometimes the problem with smart beta is that it's often expensive beta, and smart beta has been, unfortunately, much too much a marketing ploy Mm -hmm. uh, than it's been good for investors. There's nothing wrong with some different weightings. Uh, A value weighting may actually make uh, sense uh, for certain, uh, certain people, but not at the very high expense ratios that you see most of them marketed for. Uh, in the United States. I think if you can do this, 
with a low or zero expense ratio, and you can do it where it's tax efficient. And incidentally, that's another problem right. with fundamental indexing. Uh-huh. We should think of things after tax. Remember, you're doing some turnover. The nice thing about indexing is you don't sell anything. Uh, with fundamental indexing, you've got 20 or 30% turnover in a year, and uh, that often means you're taking short-term capital gains, and so your after-tax return uh, is uh, even... Not only do you uh, typically underperform, uh, but after tax, you really underperform. You are the chief investment officer of two robo-advisors, one being Wealthfront, and the other one, you're the, you're the chief investment officer of Wealthfront, but, but you are one of the three investment committee members for Rebalance IRA. Exactly. Now, the, that, that is you, a really smart human being who's making investment decisions. You're investing in index funds or ETFs, but, but you're making decisions as well, right? So there is a human factor that you still think has an important role in investing. In- what we do is we make sure in both cases, both for uh, Rebalance uh, and for Wealthfront, that the investor is broadly diversified. Right. So you don't want simply stocks. Uh, you want to make sure that you have some uh, safer income-producing uh, uh, securities that will be uh, an anchor for you uh, in, to the extent that we get a sharp market uh, sell-off. Uh, we want some real estate stocks. We want to be broadly diversified internationally as well as domestically. So part of the activity in right. the thing would be that we want uh, to make sure that the diversification is done uh, properly. And it's not stock picking. In neither case no. uh, do we stock pick. But we do have uh, certain things where we are making judgments. And I think probably the biggest judgment that we make in both cases is how should an investor deal with the bond market during a period uh, that has been called a period of financial repression. Right, where interest rates have been kept, uh, some people would say, artificially low by the central banks. Exactly. Right. And so looking at that, uh, we do think that there is something useful one can do. Now, you could buy a 10-year treasury. The yield uh, today is 2.1%, 2.15%. And with the inflation rate about 2%, that means in the net, the investor is going to get a zero rate of return. And we think, uh, if you want to call this active, it's not stock picking, but if you want to say that this is a decision, absolutely, uh, this is a decision. So in the income portfolio of Rebalance IRA or or any portfolio, you've got a a bond component. We've got a bond component, component. but we are not using the... And and here's where I will say that I actually do not like... Indexing. The index. Right. Because the total bond market index in the U.S. is over two-thirds government bonds or government-guaranteed bonds. 
and there we do not use it. So what do you do? You might call that active? Fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, one of the things that um, uh, we do is we use a stock substitute, and the other thing that we do is we use preferred stocks. So let me describe yes, both of them. please. Let's take the stock substitute. You could buy an AT&T 10-year bond and get 3.5%. You don't get two, you get about three and a half. Yeah. Or not a lot. You, not a lot, but it's a little better. But you can buy AT&T stock and you get a 5% yield. So there are some stocks that we will overweight because we think of them as bond substitutes. To be sure, that's riskier yes. than buying the bond. Right. But we think the risk-reward ratio favors doing that. Let me give you another example. And the other example, and we use this at the, in the Rebalance IRA portfolio, is we use preferred stocks. Now, preferred stock isn't a bond because the bondholder gets paid first. But the preferred stock is safer than the stock because the preferred stockholder has to get his or her dividend before the stockholder, uh, stockholders get their dividend. Right. So preferred stock today uh, yields something between 5 and 6%. We also use foreign bonds, which uh, in many cases, particularly in some of the emerging markets of the world, uh, give you 5 or 6% rates of return. So yes, in the bond portfolio, we're making an active bet. Mm -hmm. We are not going to use a United States total stock market bond. We're using some bond substitutes. And uh, at least thus far, this has worked uh, uh, extremely well uh, in the rebalance IRA portfolio. It's given us a, a considerably a higher rate of return with a bit of additional risk, but mm -hmm. with where we think the risk-reward trade-off is worth it. And, and, and at some point, if there are better bond indexes, for instance, or if there were a terrific preferred stock index, would, would you go that route? They have not uh, uh, been uh, created for preferred stocks, but what we will do is there are ETFs, uh, that are very close to that. All right. So uh, absolutely, and within uh, you can do this with ETFs. There are emerging market bond ETFs. Uh, there yes. are uh, real estate investment trust uh, uh, ETFs. So they're not exactly index funds, but uh, they are certainly serviceable and very useful. And I would simply say to people, look carefully at the expense ratios. Because, Consuela, I'll tell you one thing. I think all of us need to be very modest mm -hmm. about what we know and don't know about the stock market. But the only thing that I am really 100% sure of, and that is that the lower the expense ratio I pay to the purveyor of the product, the more there's going to be for me. My last question to you is... Uh the one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, what should we all own some of in a long-term portfolio? I would say particularly for young people uh, who can uh, have the time period to ride out the ups and downs of the stock market, 
I think I said this to you the last time we were talking. I'm going to say the same thing again. A broad, total world stock market fund, which is available either as a mutual fund or an ETF. And would you recommend one in particular? I know when you were on last, you were on with Mitch Tuckman from Rebalance IRA, and he said, you know, mentioned VT, which is the Vanguard. The VT total is the uh, ETF, uh, very low expense ratio. That's certainly a fine one to do. All right, and we'll leave it there. Professor Burton Malkiel, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Consuela. My pleasure. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is read the latest edition of a random walk down Wall Street. It is a classic for a reason. It combines financial history, theory, analysis, and timeless advice that is clearly written and entertaining. And as you just saw with Malkiel, he and it is up to date and in the forefront of sound financial thinking for individuals. Next week, top global value investor Tom Russo explains why he invests in iconic brand name companies willing to take short-term pain to achieve long-term gains. In the meantime, please visit our website's extra feature to hear more of my interview with Bert Malkiel on why he remains such an optimistic investor. Also, keep reaching out to us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.